a Podcast One production. This is The Five of My Life with me, Nigel Marsh. The series where I talk to notable people about five of their defining things. The way it works is my guests always choose a favourite film, book, song, place and possession. They tell me their choices in advance so I can research them, but they don't tell me why they've chosen them. That's the subject of our conversation. The reason I devised this series is I wanted to create a slightly different way to gain an insight into the real lives and thoughts of prominent people. Raylene Castle is one of the region's top sports administrators. In her high-profile career, she has held senior roles across a variety of disciplines, including CEO of Netball New Zealand, CEO of the Canterbury Bulldogs and CEO of Rugby Australia. So, Raylene, tell me your favourite Five of My Life story so far. Well, uh, Grant Hackett, I listened to Grant Hackett's, uh, and I thought his whole... um, you know, the story and the linkages with all of his were amazing, but I particularly liked uh, The Da Vinci Code, the book. Right. And the relevance of the book when he was, before he swam for um, a gold medal and he hadn't qualified, number one qualifier, and just how the meaning and the timing and the stress release that that brought to him to give him the confidence and the mental strength to turn up the next day and know he was capable of doing it. So that, uh, it really resonated with me. It was, it was I love the fact story. that you've chosen that story because that really stuck with me as well. They're just the turning off with something. It wasn't how to swim faster. It was the Da Vinci Code. Yeah, brilliant. And, and also that I think that's the thing that people don't realise when they deal with high-performance sport is everyone says sleep's important and sleep is very important. But actually in that day before in the lead-up, sleep's, you know, ideal, but if it doesn't work, you've just got to find that other way to switch your mind into that competitive environment and not be distracted by other things. And obviously that, for him in that moment, it's what it did. So for me, in a, from a true high performance story, it was fantastic. Well, I mean, I'm really looking forward to hearing your stories and I'm going to break with tradition Ooh. because I'm going to start with the question that I usually end with. And the reason I'm going to do that is you sent me a picture of your possession mm. and it Blew my mind. I am looking at the most amazing Nicholas Harding-esque impasto painting of a nun that is stuck in your lounge room. Mm. I just adore it. I'm going to put a picture of this painting up on Instagram so when we're talking about it, whilst we're talking about it, people can have a look. Tell me about this painting. Yeah, so Greg and I went to New York uh, in 2016. And, and who's Greg? Sorry to ask. Greg's my partner, Greg. Right, right. Uh, and so we were uh, in New York and we have a little thing whereby when we travel, uh, we try really hard to bring something home, something significant, a piece of art, a, a piece of sculpture, um, a photograph, something that, that really reminds us of our travels. So we we collect, I, we, I wouldn't say we're art collectors, but we do collect some art and art that, that sticks with us. I've got a friend who's a very, very talented New Zealand artist. And he taught me that doesn't matter whether the painting's worth $5 or is priceless, if you have an emotional connection to it, that's the most important thing. So we were looking, we decided that we wanted to buy some art when we were in New York. We went to this uh, gallery where the young developing artists were and uh, I walked into the gallery and uh, this painting just struck me. And uh, I just said, Greg, oh my goodness, we've got to have that painting. And he said to me, you do realise it's a nun? 
And because her eyes are so striking green and they look like they follow you, I hadn't even seen the habit that she was wearing, and I, and I just it just had just struck me her face and the and the way it was uh, brought together. And I'm um, a very I'm not a religious person at all, uh, so I you know I think Greg was looking at me going, why would you want you know a photo or a painting rather of a nun? Uh, but it just it it's it hit me in that I had that emotional connection to it. It's not very big; it's only about um, sixty centimeters by thirty centimeters probably. Um, but when you sit with it in the room, her eyes follow you. It doesn't matter where you go. It just has that sort of connection. So um, I found this one difficult. Possession was probably the one that I uh, struggled with a bit because it made me realise maybe I'm not actually that, possessions aren't that important to me. Uh, but the story, the emotional connection I had with it, the fact that you see her all the time, and we were in New York and we were having a fantastic holiday and all of those things... Uh, just made it. Um, yeah, it's really striking, and it's and, it, and I and I see it every day, and I love it and enjoy it every single day. Well, listen, this, this is so wonderful, which which is good because when I move on to your book, I have a bone to pick. with <laughs> Eight hundred and fourteen pages of misery, a little life by Hannah Yana Gihara. Wow, tell me about that. When did you read it, and why did it speak to you? Yeah, I, it is. It was where I was. Um, it was what the the memories and sort of what the book meant to me. And I just loved every minute of it. So, um, for Greg's fiftieth birthday, we went to Bora Bora, right? And there's worst places in the world to lie on a deck chair. One of my favourite things is to, if I get any downtime, is to read a book in a beautiful surrounding. So hot, cold, um, interesting, just to be able to have that calmness of contemplation. So we were lucky to be in Bora Bora, one of the world's truly amazing locations. I had a number of friends that had read it, so they'd given me the book and said, you need to read this. And I really struggled to get into it to start off with. I found the first sort of 150 pages a bit challenging. Um, and all of a sudden it just opened up and it was the the importance of friendship Yep. and how those people in your life that help you navigate your way through really difficult situations uh, and why, and, and I'm very lucky to have, you know, some some close, very close friends that I've had. Um, my oldest girlfriend um, I've had since I was five and we've been friends ever since we started so on the first day of school. school. Mate, yeah, lovely. Yeah, and uh, Claudia and I have been friends all those years and we uh, never uh, never had a crossword in all of those years. And uh, and, and so those reliable, safe friendships that you have and, and interestingly as you start to do more and more high profile jobs and more and more people have a perspective of you the more important those friendships are because they are normal and they remember you when you had a perm and you were at school <laughs> and your <laughs> hair wasn't dark brown like it is now it was sort of sandy blonde and curly and bad um, and you wore some you know really inappropriate 80s outfits leg warmers leg warmers definitely I had the matching jumper and leg shoulder warmers pads. shoulder pads oh, all the way I wore shoulder pads like consistently for three years thinking they were just you know but those people that know you from that perspective and can haul you back into line and make sure that they, you know, take the mickey out of you and, and, and it's a really safe place to talk about things and there's no expectation that you have to make all the decisions or take the lead on everything. Though probably some of them would say that I probably do that anyway <laughs> inside, um, you know, inside my friendships. I do like to take control of the menu when we're out for dinner, ordering dinner and things. And then I think in this, through the book is the sort of whole struggle with um, uh, being gay, 
and the whole mental health challenges and how not to, um, how to how to how that's a challenge and how people around you don't necessarily identify and recognise that those things are happening, uh, and so the way it was explained and how emotional it was in the book, and I cried, I laughed, I, you know, I sort of I couldn't put it down, but you know to understand how challenging it is for someone who is trying to uh, deal with their sexuality um, and how being in an abusive relationship, if you don't know how to ask for help, uh, and two things that I'm, you know, personally particularly passionate about is um, mental health um, and domestic violence. And there's just the statistics in this country are just too vast. One in five women find themselves in a domestic abuse um, relationship. Uh, and that's just, that's not acceptable. So you've got a room of 100 people, 20% of those people are women um, or, or 20% of the men in the room are. Um, so I think that's something that we have to stand up and address. And this book really takes it front on and, and, and you know, sort of opens up the behind the scenes, behind closed doors I, experience. I found it just unrelentingly brutal. I found it just so upsetting. When you say you laughed and cried, I mean, I just cried. But, but it, it's sort of... And it's interesting because it's about four men written by a woman. It's just it's an incredible book. Uh, change of pace because your film, <laughs> hair gel moment, Raylene Castle, you've chosen 1998 something about Mary. Tell me about that. It was a movie that probably was a little bit ahead of its time. It probably did. I remember going, turning up in the theatre. I was working at the time um, at Fuji Xerox. There was a bunch of us, about a dozen of us, that were really good mates we went along not really understanding what the movie was going to be about. I mean, obviously, you know that the actors, so you think that it, that it could be a comedy. And it was outrageous for its time, really outrageous. And I was with a girlfriend, and uh, she was laughing so hard, she had to stand up in the theatre because it's just these crazy, crazy moments. And I'm not really a, if, in all honesty, if I if I was going to choose a genre of movie now, I probably wouldn't choose that sort of really outrageous humour. But it was the people that we were with. It was the time in the business where we had this big group of friends that were working really hard, that were having lots of fun together. Um, it was it was a bit of ahead of its time because it was quite risque relative to what was now would be sort of like, you know, the youngsters today would look at it and think, oh, yes, so what? Um, and just uh, yeah, so many funny moments, and it and it it rolled over into our work environment. So the lines out of the movie were you know became the everyday sort of environment, and uh, it was just uh, yeah, it was one of those yeah really it sticks with me every time I see it replayed or I see um, you know some of those the, the actors. Um, it brings the memory back with that big smile, that sort of fun times that we were having, and uh, it brings back some really fun memories. Tell me a bit about your sense of humour. How, how would you classify it? One of the things I really don't like is that sort of American slapstick comedy. I find I get embarrassed. Like I'm watching the television, embarrassed for these people that are actually really, um, you know, being funny but being idiotic and everyone's laughing at them. So I really struggle with that sort of, um, that kind of humour. I love um, witty people that are funny, that can give you that great one-liner back again um, when you eat, you know, when you're with them, or you know, particularly on perhaps on text message or something like that, that come back with a really sharp answer. Um, it's more, it's clever in in the way that they approach their humour. Um, I love, I mean, I love laughing. I think you know, laughing is just the best medicine if you get a chance to be with some people and friends where you can, you know, have those funny things and 
funny stories. I think it's it really is the greatest uh, greatest um, uh, medicine um, if you're having a tough day. But I'm yeah, I'm not. I don't. I don't like that really stupid sort of crazy mm. humour. I'm sort of. I like it to be a bit more sophisticated, probably. Do you know the Batuta advocate? I do. Because they will nail some, you know, some issue it, just in a funny in, in a funny headline. Uh, and that's exactly the sort of humour, that cleverness of the headline. And I, they, I was actually um, the um, character on one of their articles recently. Oh, okay. That's not why I said that. No, I, no, I didn't say no, that one. Right. <laughs> not at all. But it was it was fantastic, and and it was very funny. And I had a number of people send it to me and yeah. said, "Look, you've really made it. Now you've ended up as a headline of the Batuta Advocate." Yeah. So I sent um, Clancy, who's the editor, a note afterwards and said, hey, listen, there's been some things happening at Rugby Australia. You guys have just nailed it. You've yep. nailed the messaging. You've really allowed you. us to have some fun. Yeah. They're very clever and they use, like you say, topical, really topical issues. And, and they, they did a lot during the Israel Flower saga. Right. So, you know, we, you know, that was, that was a, a, you know, a great piece of content for them. But um, more recently they did the sort of the pigeon that was the marketing expert. <laughs> I, I do. And you sort of know what they're saying. So, yeah, that's it, right, it's but it's great. Very, it's hilarious. And yeah, oh, good is. on you. No, no, good so I really, I, I do get a chuckle out of it myself. <laughs> We're going to go to your um, place, and you have chosen one of my favourite places uh, in Otago, Queenstown. Hard not to love, but why have you particularly chosen Queenstown? And tell me the story behind that. It brings together all of my favourite things. Uh, food, <laughs> wine, preferably together. Um, that amazing vista where, as I said earlier, you can sit with a book and have this complete calmness. Uh, and, and the remarkables in the background. You know, and some are all what winter. a great name. What a great right. name, that mountain range. <laughs> it, it is. It, yeah. it's, it's amazing. Um, it has, uh, because it's got uh, so many young tourists, it's always got a buzz about it. So people you know, working in cafes and restaurants from all over the world, uh, it's got the highest levels of luxury tourism. You could go and you could stay in a blanket bay lodge, which is just you know unbelievable. At the same time, you could be sitting on the foreshore eating a Ferg burger, just thinking, wow, this place is amazing. So it doesn't matter where you go or when you go, you have different experiences. Um, we've shared some good times with good friends and, and, and good people down there. Um, and as you get further out of Queenstown into Linda's Pass and the scenery is just so absolutely spectacular. And I and I do have this this friend artist friend of mine, he paints Central Otago and um that um, you know, one of his paintings and that's you know, it's just that incredible depth that you can walk into the ranges and you can see it and see it and see it and um, it just really touches me whenever I go there. And I, I'm a, um, a thrills girl as well, so I, um, I love bungee jumping. So I've bungee How jumped. How many times have you bungeed? We're out in Queenstown, four times in Queenstown. It's the most incredible adrenaline rush you can have. Like you can actually feel the adrenaline coursing out of the end of your fingers. And it's just it's a truly, truly amazing experience. So I love, you know, roller coasters and, you know, all of those sort of, you know, scary type rides. Uh, but the ultimate, you know, moment is standing on the platform and looking down, you know, 90 feet or 90 metres and the whatever it is and, and realising you're going to launch yourself off there at some... Wow, this is an amazing... amazing. So, so when I did about... I did it in um, Florida, it was the gator jump into a into a pit of, you know, live bloody alligators. <laughs> um, but the thing that I hated most, I, I just hated the whole thing. So I, I, I dove off and then you, you bounce at the bottom and then to my horror, I realised as you're springing back up, 
that the second time you descend is basically just as bad as the first. And if you like it, you're grinning like a Cheshire cat. If you like it, that's great. But if you hate it, it's a disaster. It is. <laughs> it is. But it's uh, it is yeah. It's a test of nerve, I suppose, is to actually throw yourself off there. But yeah, I'll, I'll never. The first time I did it was the most amazing. I'll never ever forget that that feeling of the adrenaline. I can actually swear I could see it coming out of the end of my finger. So this is the perfect link to our last question, which is your song for Five of My Life. Because you have chosen What Doesn't Kill You Makes You Stronger by Kelly Clarkson. Hmm. Tell me about that. So it's probably it's probably a love song in the in the um, chorus, but in the verse rather, but the chorus really for me is that mantra about I'm a great believer in what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Um, and uh, you know, certain things that happen to you outside of a work environment, certainly in a personal um, experience or in a maybe a health experience are things that um, I think give you enormous resilience when you uh, when you get into the corporate environment and you have to make really hard decisions or you'll put yourself in a difficult situation and you think, well, yes, this is difficult, but it's not half as difficult as what I've dealt with outside. And, you know, um, uh, Greg and I uh, tried to have a family and couldn't have children. Uh, and... You know, it's interesting when you when you've got when you're a, a woman who's in a, a senior job. People assume you've made the choice not to have children, right. um, and that's you know that's for us is not the case. We tried uh, and couldn't, and that's a, that's a really significant moment for a couple and a woman to say, uh, "No, what does this mean for me?" Because you just think your life's going to work out like you start here and you do this and you meet someone and then you have a family. Um, and when you when you get told that you can't, um, and the you know the IVF IVF specialist lady looks at you and says, "I really and I don't think it's worth trying again." Um, that's a hard moment, uh, but you've got two choices. In my view, you've got two choices. You either feel sorry for yourself, or you think, "For me, I've been put on this planet to do something else, so I'm going to go off and, you know." take my career down a different path and see if I can, you know, make the most and do some challenging things. So when I get myself into a difficult situation at work or it is, you know, it is challenging, um, that sort of resilience level to realise that I've looked some other really difficult things um, in the face, uh, for me, makes some of those decision-making things or difficult environments or, you know, people say, why would you go and put yourself and become CEO of Rugby Australia? It's got some challenges and, you know, um, well, why wouldn't you? Because the alternative is that, you know, you. I want to say that when they finally put me in a box, she had to go at absolutely everything. So that's been the real driver. What an amazing story. I mean, thank you for, for sharing that. Is, is, are there other things uh, in your life that you would refer to like, like not being able to have kids or is that the main sort of driver? No, I think it's a quite, I've been really public with the fact that I've got alopecia. So I've got alopecia areata, which is a autoimmune disease that um, eats your hair follicles, so it doesn't sound very glamorous, and it's not really when you're a woman. Uh, and so for me... Um, is, when, is that just hereditary bad luck, or do you get it from, do you catch it from something? Or, or? Yeah, it's just, it's just bad, it's just your gene combination, and it's right. just really bad luck. So yeah. uh, it goes through cycles of sometimes you've got hair, sometimes you haven't. I only started when I was in my mid-30s. Right. Uh, and I'd always had sort of really, the, my hair was my thing probably, I suppose. Uh, and especially in the 80s with the Italian Especially in the 80s with my perm, <laughs> my very special perm. Uh, and yeah, and, and it happens, and, and the first time it happened, I, I kept it very um, secret and I didn't tell anyone and I sort of just tried to manage my way through. But unfortunately, um, 
I didn't realise how everyone else was perceiving me because I have to wear a headscarf or a, or a hat and things. Um, people thought I had cancer. Right. And so the next time, and I sort of got through the first phase, and interestingly, actually, um, the, the, at the time, the New Zealand Prime Minister, um, John Key, said to me, so really, have you got cancer? And I said, oh, no, John, I haven't actually. And he said, oh, that's good. And please, they've got a few mates going through that at the moment, and that's not much fun. <laughs> right. As only John Key could just to move on. Yeah. Uh, but um, the second time it happened, I was here at the Bulldogs, and I decided to go public with it. And I did that for three reasons. One was I wanted um, uh, no one to think I had cancer because that's not you know, fair with people that are having that really challenging time of cancer. Secondly, um, I didn't want any of those corridor conversations where, oh, the job's too tough. Ah, right, stress. So stress yeah, related, because okay, it's gotcha. got nothing to do with stress. Right. I mean, I'm sure I could live a healthier lifestyle and sleep more and exercise more. Right. But that doesn't really make any difference. Uh, my brother's also got it, and he um, he also has not a hair on his whole single body at the moment. Um, and the third reason was because there is other young women that are faced with it, and it's not an easy thing when you're judged on your appearance. Um, that's not something that men face in the corporate world, but, you know, how my hair looks, what you know, my makeup, my clothes, the choice, all of those things get commented on. So it is more difficult when you're a woman. And um, I wanted to be able to talk about that openly. And I've had a lot of young women reach out to me and say thank you for sharing because it has made a difference. I know I can deal with it differently or I can think about being more confident with it. So from that point of view, it was, you know, it's rewarding. Um it's um yes, it's it's not not an easy thing to deal with when you're a female because you do being my brother just has no hair and is it just looks a bit like Michael Klim, like sort of owns it, rocks it, like really great. Yeah. But it's very confronting for a woman to walk into a room with not a single hair. Um so I'm in a phase at the moment I've got a wig. Um, you know, that requires some logistics around movement and travel and where you go and you know, all of that. Um and then sometimes my hair grows back and it's fine. So I'm not seeing much sign of that at the moment, so who knows? Well, good on you for fronting it up. I mean, it's sort of... I remember there was... I think it's Mo Molan was a, a, a British politician who, in the peace talks, she she had... I don't know if it was what, what you've got, but things were getting pretty, you know, serious, you know, trying to trying to find a way through the troubles, and she took her wig off in the meeting. And, and you know, some people attribute that moment to actually, you know, making some break because everyone was so sort of stunned. There's a woman in front of me and she's taken a bloody wig off and she's bald. Uh, and, yeah, so good on you. Mm. It, it's, been, it's been so fabulous listening to you. You, you really... Uh, I, I was looking forward to this conversation and, and it's over-delivered, so thank you. I'm going to go to my last question, which you may know I'm going to ask, but is who would you like to hear next on The Five of My Life and why? Kathy Freeman. Kathy Freeman. Okay, and, and why? Well, I think what she did uh, in her own way as an athlete, under the pressure in two thousand of being at a home Olympics and being the favourite, and actually going in uh, and being out for an athlete that can perform at that very level in that very moment is something that's extraordinary. But what she subsequently done for Indigenous First Nations people in this country and the support that she's given them and the growth um, opportunities and the hope that she's given to, to young Indigenous athletes to show that they can perform on the world stage, I think is um, is really special. I just think she 
tell a great story. And, and it'd be nice to see, because you see her all the time talk passionately about winning the gold medal and the experiences that she had, and I've seen documentaries to that. But I'd like to hear what her favourite movie and favourite yeah, book, etc. Yeah, exactly, because be the, the device of the, the book and the film, you, you get a different side. So what mm. a great suggestion. We will um, we'll get her on. Raylene Castle, thank you so much for sharing the five of your life. Thank you for having me. The Five of My Life was presented by me, Nigel Marsh, created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer, Alex Mitchell. Sound production and theme music by Darcy Thompson and Matt Nicklish. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search The Five of My Life on Apple Podcasts.